Amen. You may be seated. It's welcome. Welcome. It's great to be back here with all of you today. I was down in Tennessee for a couple of weeks visiting family. Had a great Christmas down there. I hope all of you had a great Christmas and New Year's up here as well, or those of you that might have traveled. Uh, it's kind of weird that it's 2022. I haven't, it'll take me a while to adjust to that, as I'm sure it will for you as well. Last year, I began regularly listening to a podcast about the legal system, focused on the legal system of the United States. While the podcast will talk about any legal issue that arises, the hosts, who are both lawyers, tend to spend most of the time on cases that are being considered by the Supreme Court. This makes sense. All the courts in the country are supposed to base their judgments on the jurisprudence that has been established at the highest level. People care a lot about what the Supreme Court has to say, whether they agree or disagree with it. The nine justices that make up the court will not just take up any case where one side doesn't like the results. They normally take cases where a legal question that is new or unclear is in play. These cases are often very challenging. The Supreme Court must decide not just the correct decision to make in one particular case, but how the precedent they are setting will affect all the other legal decisions being made throughout the country. Sometimes in their decisions, the court will put forward what is known as a multi-part test for lower courts to be able to decide cases. A multi-part test is not a simple yes or no. It bases the decision of what is legal on a consideration of multiple factors. Today, we are going to finish up our time in 1 Corinthians until after Easter. In these verses, Paul is like a Supreme Court justice answering a difficult legal question. He is giving the people of Corinth a multi-part test for them to know how to live out God's truth in their lives. The judgment he gives is not a simple yes or no. He encourages his readers to consider a variety of factors. His judgment sets a biblical precedent all Christians should aim to live by. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 so we can hear what scripture has to say to us and apply it to our own lives. We will begin reading in verse 25 and read through verse 40. This is a longer passage of scripture. It will be projected on the screen behind me. It is on page 898 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 
Chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong... And it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Hopefully you didn't zone out about halfway through that text. It is easy to drift when what you're reading seems confusing or not applicable to your present circumstances. I appreciate that the Bible doesn't always give us easy answers. It has high expectations of us. As for applicability, I would argue these verses have a lot to say to everyone, even those that have no questions regarding their relationship status. The questions Paul is answering are pretty specific. The precedent he sets 
is applicable whenever Christians are determining how to live with an eternal mindset in a temporal world. That is the situation we all find ourselves in. The present form of this world is passing away. Some of you would say hallelujah to that. This world is inseparable from the sin that is endemic in it. Every area of the world is infested with the disease of the fall and the resulting curse. In some ways, this is obvious to us. We are reminded of it all the time. When a terrorist attack happens, it reminds us the world is not as it should be. Every time an affair occurs or someone dies, even when it is of natural causes, we know the world isn't right. It is also true that we are often oblivious to how messed up our world is. In 2005, the American author David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. Foster began the speech with a story. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what's water? Foster then explained that the immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have life or death importance. Nobody is going to leave here today talking about how insightful it was for me to point out our world is messed up by sin. This truth is pretty obvious to everyone. It can almost sound like a banal platitude. The fact is that we fail to realize the full impact of the obvious truth of sin in day-to-day -day existence. Sin is to us like water is to a fish. It's everywhere, so we often don't even notice most of its effects. David Foster Wallace was wrong about a lot, but he was right to point out banal platitudes can have life or death importance. This is certainly true of sin. The more Jesus eradicates the sin of this world, the more unrecognizable the current form of it would be. A world without sin 
would bear little resemblance to the world we live in. Everyone would be able to make every decision with complete trust in the goodness of their fellow man. There would be no shame. People wouldn't posture to try to impress one another. Concern that family get-togethers were going to descend into hurtful argumentation would be non-existent. While this world sounds pretty nice, we wouldn't actually know how to navigate it if we were just dumped into it. One time I was talking with my Haitian friend, Timothy, and I asked him if he would ever want to move from Haiti to the United States. His answer surprised me. He said he would not want to move to the USA. He explained to me that he knew how to navigate life in Haiti. It wasn't that the dysfunction there didn't bother him. It certainly did. Timothy recognized Haiti was an environment he knew how to live in, whereas the United States was not. You often find the more toxic an environment is that a person is used to, the less comfortable they are in healthy environments. We all know men and women that are examples of this in regards to relational drama. They don't actually feel comfortable in a stable relationship. They need that drama. If we are honest with ourselves, we all have a preference for the way this world operates in certain ways. It could be that we are more comfortable with lust than love. Or maybe we prefer war over peace. We are used to war and lust. Love and peace can actually feel threatening to us. The world that Jesus is bringing into existence bears little resemblance to our current experience. When Christians talk about what comes after the world we live in passes away, our minds jump to heaven. Heaven is something that everyone has some conception of. Normally, thoughts about it are more a product of movies and the medieval imagination than they are of Scripture. Heaven supposedly consists of harps of gold and clean white togas. Part of the problem for us is that the Bible doesn't actually have a ton to say about what heaven will be like. Many people would interpret what it does have to say in a book like Revelation symbolically. This doesn't mean that what is being said is untrue. It means that what is being communicated when John says in Revelation 21, 21, that the great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass, the reality being described is more spiritual than physical. The Bible doesn't give us a crystal clear picture of what will replace our present world. 
which is passing away, because we cannot wrap our minds around it. What we can imagine is too much a product of our own experience. Our experience includes all the effects of sin and the curse. We are actually incapable of currently imagining a world without either. I think that's why when we think about heaven, we focus on the material aspects of the experience. What Jesus is bringing about is a new creation. Heaven and earth made one. Revelation picks up on this theme that Isaiah had preached, returning to the 21st chapter of that book, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Living in a temporal world, a world of sin that is passing away with the hope of an eternal world we struggle to imagine is not a straightforward task. Which world do you prioritize? It is clear Christians should prioritize the world that God is bringing about. All the decisions we make will play out in the short term in the present dysfunctional world. Paul is helping Christians at the time and those that follow us navigate the inherent contradictions between the world that is passing away and the world that is to come. He says in verse 29, From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who, mour who mourn, as though they were not really mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. His point is not that Christians should abandon their marriages, not take care of their property, and walk away from all their worldly responsibilities. He is describing a disposition towards the passing world. Christians' devotion to the Lord should be undivided. 
all should live in a way that prioritizes the world that Jesus is bringing into existence. That is what will last. Paul's argument is sound, yet our present world is not something we can just opt out of. Each of our lives is connected to this fallen world. We have desires that are earthly. We still have to eat. We have relationships with other people that have expectations of us. It is not a sin to make decisions that take into account our present existence. It would be ridiculous not to. The person who acknowledges who they are in this world does well. Today's verses matter to us because they supply a sort of multi-part test. Paul doesn't say, do this or don't do this. There is no clear, actionable command. He says we are all supposed to have an eternal mindset. While that is true, it is also more subjective. In this world that is passing away, we sometimes have to consider a variety of factors. God's eternal kingdom should be prioritized. We cannot ignore the present form of our existence and all its implications. To know how we should live in a world that is passing away, we must know ourselves. Everyone is different. Some people do well to be single. Some people don't. This is just one area where decisions must be made. What works for you or I doesn't necessarily work for someone else. Recently, a friend was telling me how another friend was telling them what town they should live in. The friend that was giving the advice displayed an ignorance to the friend they were advising. They confidently proclaimed only one town would make sense while ignoring that my friend who was trying to determine where to live, who was receiving this advice, couldn't even afford to live in the town the other friend was saying was the only possibility. The Bible doesn't mandate Christians fit in narrow boxes. Christians will often mandate that other Christians fit in narrow boxes, but that is another story. Any Christian that confidently states others should live in some way the Bible doesn't speak to directly should be questioned and probably ignored. These verses are specifically focused on how different people should make marriage decisions. I, for one, don't think I am a good fit for singleness. It's probably a good thing to know at this point. If I were, 
Would I have less anxieties in my life? Yeah, yeah, that's, I would. I would. Being married, having four kids requires resources, time, energy, financial, and I'm sure would say the same. I don't think if I were single, my life would prioritize God more though. That's for me. I actually believe that for me, being married and having kids helps keep me on track spiritually. While marriage or singleness is probably the biggest decision a person will ever make in this regard, it is not the only decision a person will make. I know women that have had to make the decision with their husbands of whether they should stay at home, be a full-time mom, or have a job. They have to figure out who they are and what they are best suited for while keeping in mind their family dynamics, life situation, and most importantly, which decision makes the most sense in light of the fact this world is passing away. What gets chosen by a particular woman and man and husband and their relationship, that's going to that's gonna vary depending on the family, depending on the situation. To grow in self-knowledge so that we can know how to live as we should, we need to interact with the one who knows us best. That is God. He made us. That means he knows our dispositions. He knows what we are good at and what we are not. He knows the world we live in. Its pitfalls are obvious to him. He can see the opportunities that exist for us as well. Through Jesus, God redeemed us. That means he is aware of what needs to happen for us to fully become ready for the world that is coming. He has confidence in what we can be and what we will be. Nobody else knows you like God knows you. Not your parents, spouse, therapist, friends, boss, or mailman. God knows you better than you know yourself even. To know how to live in our passing world, we look to God. He provides us his word for us to know ourselves. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is like a mirror through which we see ourselves more clearly. The Holy Spirit operates in the hearts of believers. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God knows what is good for us more than we know ourselves. 
The Bible doesn't treat living in this world that is passing away as a matter of straightforward rule following. We have to do our own multi-part test frequently. We have to consider the world that God is bringing about. We have to consider our own limitations as broken creatures. We have to acknowledge that God is in the process of redeeming us. For all of this, we have the guidance of Scripture and the Spirit. We have to know ourselves in reference to God to know how to move through this world. Most importantly, we have to have our priorities straight. Christians should live with an eternal mindset in a temporal world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, living with the knowledge that this world we are living in, that we are a part of, is coming to an end is a daily challenge for us. It is is a temptation for us to invest solely in the things of this world that are passing away, Lord. I pray that our mind would be set on what you are bringing about, what you are doing, and that through that we would know how to live in our daily lives, how to make the decisions that we need to make. That through your word and through your spirit, that we would have the knowledge and the wisdom to do so. All this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.